0: A reading from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel,
1: A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, starting with verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to
2: God. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The gospel of the Lord.
3: Praise to you, Lord Christ. So today we continue in the season of Epiphany, the season of God's light shining into all the world. Each week we hear about an Epiphany, a time in which Christ has been revealed. And all of our readings point to God as the revealing God. This is who God is and what God does. Speaking, shining, unveiling. So we begin in the Old Testament with the story of Samuel. This story comes, the author tells us, at a dark time in the world. Uh, And it's dark in a few ways, and the the author lets us know this in a couple important ways. So first, there's corruption. Eli is the high priest at the time, and the temple is corrupt. And then it says, the literary stuff is brilliant, it says that Eli himself has gone blind. So that's a reflection both of his physical blindness, but also his incapacity for vision, for what's ahead. Second, in addition to um, corruption, there's also barrenness. So in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, we're told that Hannah, who will eventually be Samuel's mother, is barren. In Scripture, barrenness is often a sign of human emptiness. It doesn't represent sin, but it represents that which exists before creation or the need for God. So whenever in Scripture we see a woman unable to give birth, we know God is about to do something. That gives us a signal to something there. And then third, so we have corruption, we have barrenness, and then it says the word of the Lord was rare. So this was a time of confusion because God seems silent. And in the midst of all of this, Samuel is born to Hannah. So Samuel, this child, is God's response to corruption, barrenness, and silence. This is what God does, this child who is born. Samuel's mother has committed her son to service in the temple under the high priest. Eli, we saw that in chapters 1 and 2. And even though the word of the Lord was rare, it says the lamp of God had not yet gone out. God has not given up on speaking to his people. It's not over yet. It's dark, but the light is still there. Now, Eli's sons are a mess. They are the priests at the time. Uh, the priesthood was hereditary at that point. And they're selfishly skimming off the sacrifices They're not reverent. They're sleeping around with the women who served at the temple. They steal the gourmet food. They pursue illicit sex. Even today, we look at that and we go, these are signs of corruption. Now, many of us are familiar with corrupt religious structures. We've seen it. We've experienced it. We've become used to hearing stories about corruption in the church. My generation was born into the scandals surrounding men like Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker. I also grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was always considered the land of charismatic megachurches. (laughs) And in my high school and college years, it seemed like every year there was a new major doctrinal, financial, or sex scandal involving a pastor or leader. But corruption spans denomination. It spans church size, uh, region of the country, And we see that the church is full of broken people, including leaders. Religion is such a powerful thing. I think it's interesting when you meet people that go, I just can't uh, believe in Christianity or whatever it is because of all of the corruption. And I think one of the things it shows us is religion itself is a powerful thing. It's powerful for good. And when it's perverted, it is very powerful for evil. Eugene Peterson says, holy places provide convenient cover for unholy ambitions. They always have, and they always will. So Samuel grows up in the midst of all this dysfunction, and he ministers under Eli in the time when the word of the Lord was rare. So if if you haven't figured it out already, the author of 1 Samuel is telling us there's a bunch of dark, corrupt stuff going on, okay? And that's in which Samuel ministers, and he lives. But then, verse 4, God speaks. Whenever we see God has been silent, whenever there's been barrenness or purposelessness, we can trust God is about to speak. That's what the scripture says. This was actually the unique thing about Yahweh, about our God among the pagan deities. Our God is the one who speaks. Now at this time, God's voice had been so unclear. Things were so muddy and broken and empty in the world that when the Lord calls to Samuel, the child Samuel in the middle of the night, he immediately thinks it's Eli. The author wants us to see something here. When we're not used to hearing God's voice, we quickly assume that other voices are speaking to us instead. Eli responds actually with an act of mentorship. After the third time that Samuel hears God speak, Eli tells Samuel, go lay down, and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. If you think about it, Samuel's whole ministry in the future will be defined by listening to the Lord. Years later, as an older prophet, Samuel will anoint David. But if it had been up to Samuel, he would have anointed one of Jesse's older boys instead. But it's in listening to God who tells him that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart that he does God's will. When Samuel, in this story, when Samuel the child listens to the voice of the Lord, God tells him he's about to do something. And this thing he's about to do is gonna bring judgment on the house of Eli because of his sons. So the next morning, Samuel tells Eli all that God said. Now this is where I think Eli gets a bad rap. Okay, Um, I I do research for other pastors and sermons and, and one of the common tropes is when you want to really tell people to be good parents. Look at Eli and say he's a bad parent because he didn't pass down the faith to the next generation. So it becomes kind of an easy foil for you know, bad parenting for Eli. But actually, I think Eli's really complex. Yes, he knows what his sons are doing. And the reading seems to indicate that he's complicit in some way. So judgment is needed. Revealing is needed. Healing is needed here. But Eli also plays an important role in his response to that judgment. Even when he knows that his house is going to come under judgment, and this is outside of our reading today, but he says, he's the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. In this sense, Eli is a good priest, even though he's not a perfect man. This is what priests or pastors are for, to help us listen and discern. This may help us in understanding that God can and does use broken and flawed people to carry forth the gospel in the world and in our lives. So it's Eli who tells Samuel how he is to respond to God. The child Samuel is completely dependent. This is God's prophet, the one whom God has called, and he's dependent on Eli to help him. And later, Eli will be dependent on Samuel to hear and know God's word. Some of you have had bad experiences with church. Some of them were really, really bad. Some of you are going, I've had good experiences with church. That's been my only experiences. For most of us, it's complicated, especially those of us that are adults, okay? You may describe your overall experience with church as good, but you go, yeah, it was good, but you know, I didn't really like how that church talked about women. (laughs) Or, I didn't like how they seemed to think one political party was the solution to the world's problems. Or gosh, we did all the rituals, but there was no vitality. No one has ever experienced the perfect church, ever. It just doesn't exist. And yet these places and these people formed us in the faith. We made decisions for Christ. We were baptized, we were taught the scriptures by imperfect people. The story of Samuel and Eli gives us space to see God uses broken vessels. Even in the midst of a necessary judgment of the church, and I think we're going through one of those periods of time right now where things are being revealed and people are asking questions and going, what is all of this? But even in a time like that, we can see grace shines through. And in some sense, I think now feels like a time when the word of the Lord is rare. There are so many different voices of authority in our world today, and many of us tend to drift towards our preferred ideology and those voices, and then we allow ourselves to be disciplined or formed by those voices. Our ears are attuned to voices that can speak worldly wisdom to us, but our ears are not often attuned or prepared for the voice of God. So how does one listen for the voice of God? This is a good question. It's a great thing to say, listen for God's voice, but what does that even mean? Well, placing ourselves in a posture to hear that voice often shows itself in spiritual disciplines. This is where the spiritual disciplines come into play. Prayer, scripture reading, weekly worship. None of these things are ways of making God speak. It's not that if we do more prayer or if we, if we go to church more often, then we make God speak. We don't get to do that, right? But what it does is it helps us put ourselves in a posture or in a position to receive and to hear God's voice. In addition to spiritual disciplines, we listen for God's voice in community. Notice Samuel needed Eli, and Eli needed Samuel. We need each other. We're not supposed to listen for God's voice just alone. And then finally, we listen for God among the poor and the needy. If we spend our entire lives among those who are well off, we may struggle to hear the cries of those in need. But Jesus says when we serve those who are hungry, thirsty, needing clothes, or in prison, it's really serving him because he's there. That's Matthew 25. Now notice, each of these things have a way of getting us outside ourselves. That's the common thing. Spiritual disciplines, community, among the poor and needy, is we're getting outside of what would typically just be us. We're opening ourselves up to another voice. In the epistle reading, which Ezra read so well, Paul is having an imaginary dialogue with a debate partner about bodies and what to do with bodies, Now, in Corinth at that time, people believed that what you did with your body didn't really matter. So there was a slogan, verse 12, I have the right to do anything. seems like it was like the bumper sticker of the day, was the motto, I can do whatever I want to do. The emphasis here is on the individual as the primary and sovereign authority. Now, notice this. It's easy to say, oh, yeah, those Corinthians were so corrupt. These are the Corinthian Christians that are saying this. So they're the ones that are saying, we can just do whatever we want to do. Now, Paul systematically pushes back on this. But ultimately, he says this, whatever, if you just do whatever you want to do in your life, follow your urges, you're actually becoming a slave to your passions. So you think what you're doing is you're super independent and wise because you can do things all by yourself and you're not restrained by anybody, but you're just becoming a slave to your urges. God cares for the body, Paul says. How do we know that? Because he raised the Lord Jesus bodily. This act is also the promise that he's going to raise us. So if you're a Christian, resurrection is the whole thing. It's the whole Christian thing. So you can't claim to be a Christian and also say your bodies don't matter. What you do with your bodies don't matter. Not only do our bodies matter, They belong to Christ. So Paul is saying we have a stronger bond with Christ than we do with anything else. But we have to admit this is tricky. Many of us, some of us, at least if you're my generation, grew up in some versions of what is often called purity culture, which uses verses like this to shame people and then exclude people. Remember, Paul is responding to a dominant culture, a culture that says what you do with your bodies doesn't matter because your bodies don't really matter. But in fact, Paul says they do matter. This doesn't mean a person who has sex outside of marriage is forever tarnished, as some forms of purity culture would affirm. It means God cares, really and truly cares about us and what happens to us. And with that, he cares about what we do with our bodies. This is good news, even though the modern church has treated this often as a message of shame. The further good news is we don't have to be enslaved to our passions. That doesn't have to be the final thing that we give allegiance to. A good theology of the body has implications for our sex lives, but also for the ways we care about our bodies, the other ways, and about our physical world. If we think about our physical bodies, Christians have learned for centuries to engage our physical bodies in prayer. We make the sign of the cross, we kneel, some run our hands over beads, prayer beads, we raise our hands in worship, we're mindful in prayer, even dancing. (laughs) In many modern church settings, those things have been dismissed as superstition. Because we're more interested in the things of the mind. Why should we care about the things of the body? But what if our bodies had a more central place in our faith formation? Might that help us to avoid the pitfalls of shame in regards to our bodies? After all, as Paul says, the body is the Lord's. Now, of course, it's never about what we do ultimately, but it's about receiving God's grace for our whole selves and for the body of Christ. Finally, I wanna look at our gospel reading. But let me start with this. Many of you know this past weekend was the college football championship game. I'm aware that some of you don't know that at all. Dave is rejoicing because his Michigan Wolverines defeated the Washington Huskies 34 to 13. Now we live in a part of the country, I know some of you can avoid this, but we live in a part of the country where college football and college rivalries are significant, right? In the South and the Midwest, you're not just, you don't just pick what team you root for. Your family is an Alabama family or a Georgia family or an Oklahoma family or an Ohio State family. I remember when our church in Tulsa remodeled a section of our church building. And at that time in the early 2000s, one of the cool colors was burnt orange, right? So we'd paint this whole wall, this like kind of burnt orange. It was a cafe kind of look. You guys remember churches back then, right? Um, and and we b- painted it burnt orange, which happens to be the color of the University of Texas. All right? A member of our church who was an Oklahoma fan despised the change and threatened to never come back again until we painted that wall. We thought he was joking. He was not joking. <laughs> or have you ever heard jokes about rival schools? Usually they're pointed at intelligence or test scores. It's almost like we'll want to say could anything good come out of Tuscaloosa? Could anything good come out of Norman or out of Austin? I talked to a guy a few years ago when we were visiting our home state in Oklahoma. He was a graduate of Oklahoma State University, and he told me about his church and the church. He said, yeah, I like my church, but I'm real suspicious of the new pastor. And I said, why? Why would you be suspicious of the new pastor? He said, well, the new pastor is an OU graduate. And he had hired some of his guys from Norman to come in. And he had a problem with the church because of that. (laughs) Okay, so our gospel reading, the reason why I bring this up is our gospel reading has some comic relief to it. It's possible we've got two young men here who are from backwater towns. Well, actually, a couple of the young men are from a place called Bethsaida, which is a backwater town in Galilee. And they're making fun of a guy from another backwater town in Galilee called Nazareth. So Nazareth was this traditional, kind of buttoned-up, orthodox small town. Bethsaida was a small fishing village. So you can imagine the jokes. People from Bethsaida are saying that people from Nazareth are buttoned up and pious. People from Nazareth are calling people from Bethsaida fishy or smelling of fish. So Nathanael is not prepared to see that Jesus is not just a Galilean young man from a rival town. He is that, but he's also something else. So he says this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a leading question. Nathanael believes there's no compelling evidence that this guy is somebody who I should follow. Philip's response, his friend who's inviting him to follow Jesus, is simple. Come and see. This is the invitation to the skeptic. Come and see. And it's used throughout John's gospel as people are drawn to Jesus. The gospel of John calls us look for God in unlikely places. Look for God in places where you wouldn't expect him. So Philip invites Nathaniel to come and see, but the writing here is brilliant. Jesus has already seen him. So Philip says, come and see Jesus. And Jesus is like, I've already seen you sitting under the fig tree. We have to trust that God is working in the lives of people before we ever meet them. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes I was trained in like church to be an evangelist, and in that world it meant I am bringing the gospel to somebody's life in order to fix them or heal them or rope them in or something like that. What if we thought about it as Jesus has already seen them a long time ago and is already working in their life? Running in the background of this account is the story of Jacob from Genesis. Jacob was described as a schemer, always looking for a way to get ahead. And then later on, he wrestles with God's messenger, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That name means one who wrestles with God. So Jacob goes through this shift of being the schemer to the one who wrestles with God. Jesus is likely referring to Jacob with some wordplay here. So he says of Nathanael, here's an Israelite, one who wrestles with God, who is without deceit, without scheming. Okay. Here's a son of Jacob who is not scheming. Well, at one point in the Jacob story, Jacob had a dream, and he saw this ladder. I won't tell the whole story, but extending from ground to heaven, angels are going up and down, ascending and descending, and God appeared to Jacob and said he's going to bring him into the land of peace and prosperity. Jesus, as he's speaking to Nathanael, is clearly pointing to the Jacob story, and he's telling his disciples that they will somehow, they're going to see angels ascending and descending. But what does he mean by that? What does it mean that we, through Jesus, will see angels ascending and descending? Well, the point of Jacob's ladder was God's insistence to Jacob that he would not leave him alone. Jacob called that place Bethel, which means God's house. And then there endured this belief among God's people that when you worship in God's house, God is with you, really with you, really present with you. In fact, the beginning of John's gospel, which John Thompson spoke on so well um, a couple of weeks ago, says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The message translation of this said, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. God pitched a tent in our neighborhood. God moved in, God will always be with us. God links arms with us in the midst of our suffering and in our pain and is present with us. This is so different from all the pagan gods of the ancient world and the pagan gods of our time. The pagan gods see your neighborhood as too icky. There's too much crime, too much pain in your neighborhood. For these gods, the goal is to get people out of the neighborhood, get them to heaven, get them to live right so they can approach a holy God. But that's not our God. Our God says, no, I'm moving in. Side by side with pain and suffering. Side by side with brokenness. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, don't seek me because I'm able to discern who you are by looking at you under the fig tree. By following me, you will see what it looks like when heaven and earth come together. When God moves in. When God is with you. So this question can anything good come out of Nazareth? I think this is our eternal human question. Could anything good come out of this? Could anything good come out of my pain? Could anything good come from me, and my past? Could anything good come from my background? Can anything good come in the midst of my trauma, from my aching? Or maybe it's more simple than that. Maybe it's, can anything good come from my boring life? <laughs> My ordinary life, the good news is not only that good is coming out of Nazareth, but the ultimate good is coming out of Nazareth. As I end here, tomorrow our country stops to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we celebrate this day realizing that even though we have made a lot of progress in a move towards racial equality, we're reminded that we have a long way to go. Yes, we got rid of Jim Crow laws, but black votes are still looked at with suspicion. Yes, we're desegregated, but because of a shady history of housing laws, we still find ways to resegregate. Sure, we passed civil rights legislation, but minority families are still too often blamed as being what's wrong with America. This, too, today, feels like a time when the word of the Lord was rare. And it's a time like this where we need prophets like Samuel, like Dr. King, who point us to the one in whom there is true justice. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the place where heaven and earth meet. Prophets are important in a time like this, especially because they help us see the world as it should be and it will be. Prophetic utterances are audacious. They say, no, we're not living how we're supposed to live. We're not being who we're supposed to be. The world does not look the way that it's supposed to look. And they challenge us to live that day here and now. We also need good and faithful priests. So we need prophets and we need priests. We need priests because not all prophets are from God. (laughs) Priests and pastors help us think through how prophetic words fit with Scripture and with the tradition. Many, I think, in our world today are asking, could anything good come from this? We got a lot of large-scale stuff. Have you noticed this? A lot of large-scale stuff going on in our world that's really dark. We've got political and cultural polarization. Insecurity surrounding our system of government. We've got a climate crisis. We've got wars in Ukraine and in Israel and Gaza and now Yemen. Our system of or, you know, inequality and injustice is rampant. And then we got all that large-scale stuff, right? And then each of you faces everyday stuff, too. Health challenges, parents getting older, kids making unhealthy choices, financial insecurity. When God's voice seems dim, we can trust, as Christians, God's light has not gone out. We need to hold on to that, and this has proven true in Jesus, Jesus is the light, as John says. And so we see that even in the midst of darkness, we can trust and we can be the people that the light still goes out. In his 1958 book, Stride Toward Freedom, King wrote of a time where he felt like he was at the end of his rope. Okay? You can imagine in his life that there were many times, not only of discouragement, but thinking, this is over. He said this, I was ready to give up. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever." Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. The inner voice did not tell MLK that his circumstances would just magically get better. Don't worry, hold on, things are just going to all be better. No, King heard that when he stands for righteousness and truth, God will be with him forever. Now, you may not have had a kitchen table moment like this. Maybe you have. But regardless, we can still hold on to these words. He is with us. We don't have to fear. Angels are ascending and descending in front of us. God is speaking. So may we have ears to hear, hearts to discern, and may we come and see God in surprising places. Amen.